Welcome to Friday's edition of Big Blue Kickoff Live right here on Giants.com. Schmelk Detino with you. Hope, hope everybody's surviving in their isolation. Paul and I are separate. We're still doing this thing on remote. We always happy to be with you, and we'll try to do a great program today to carry you through the weekend before we're back on Monday. And we're going to start with our first guest, Matt Maticharian, VP of Football Research and Sports Info Solutions. And Matt, you guys have a book out. Why don't you tell the folks about it and where they can find it? Yeah, so the SIS Football Rookie Handbook, this is the second year that we're putting out. And essentially, it's a draft guide, but it's kind of unlike any other draft guide in that what we're doing is really two things. You're combining my background as an NFL scout. I spent five years with two different teams. Um, and so you get all these NFL-style scouting reports where it's really uh, through scouts' eyes what you're looking at and really the exact same way that NFL teams try to look at these critical factors, uh, positional grades, all that kind of stuff. Then you get really what our bread and butter is at Sports Info Solutions, which is kind of, you know, some people like to call it analytics, some people that, that scares them off a little bit. Um, but basically, we have all these video scouts that watch every NFL and college football game. We have at least four scouts watch every game, so they're gathering all kinds of advanced data. And along with the scouting reports for every player, you get these advanced analytical breakdowns with everything from the things that a scout would look at, you know, and really be curious about to know, uh, you know, not just was it complete, but was it accurate, uh, you know, for a quarterback, et cetera. And then some of the more advanced analytics, you know, we have a statistic called total points. I can get into all the nitty-gritty about it and kind of nerd out for days. But uh, <laughs> it's kind of a, a best of both worlds there in terms of uh, the jock side of my brain and the nerd side of my brain. Matt, let me ask you this. We obviously know that most of the pro days were canceled. Uh, teams clearly would love to have the extra information they can get from those meetings. But from what you guys do, it doesn't sound like the pro days necessarily altered what your approach or what your research was going to reveal. Yeah, that's really true. So going back to my background as an NFL scout, um, the, you know, the one thing that drives you crazy as a scout is all the stuff that changes from the time when the season ends, really, at the end of <laughs> November. I mean, that's really when you finish playing football, and suddenly all these guys move up and down the board until the end of April. And it drives you nuts. And uh, one thing that I talk about in the introduction of the Rookie Handbook is how the February draft board is really what the scouts love. That's the pure draft board because that's based on we went through the season. We all did our, our regional reports, right? I would be in the Northeast, for example. We all get our regional reports in on all the players. Then we do our position-by-position cross-check, so each scout gets a position group, and then you can get a cross-section that way. Then we do our first round of meetings. We get the all-star games. We get to see the senior bowl, and then we go in for those February meetings where we really hash out the board, and that's the scouts board to me. Yeah, you'll adjust things after that for the combine. You'll adjust it for injuries. You'll figure in all the coaches' opinions and different things like that, but for as much as that stuff helps, I think there's also something to be said for that stuff being a, a lot of noise uh, to some extent. So maybe this does help us a little bit get back to focusing on the film in terms of figuring out who's a good football player. Well, Matt, yeah, Matt let me tell you, Paul and I are on board with that because, you know, we, we say things all the time that it's what happens during the season that's important. And the stuff that's important at the Combine are the meetings with the players and the medical. All these numbers simply either confirm what you saw on tape or just make you go back and look again to see if maybe you missed something. Right, exactly. I think it's much more common to look at a, a corner run, a 40-yard dash, and run 4-7, and you say, oh, man, we, we must have missed on this guy. We didn't know what was going on there. we got to take another look. 
because we thought he could play, but we, we haven't seen any evidence of any NFL corners playing that run that slow. So something's got to give there. And so you got to go back and see, was it something weird about the test in this day, or was it, is this who that guy is? So um, I agree with you. And when it matches, when the scouting opinion matches kind of what the numbers tell you, I think that helps. But more importantly than the numbers in terms of what you run at the combine, the numbers in terms of your production on the field, and I'm not talking about yards and completions, but I'm talking about offensive linemen missing blocks and running backs breaking tackles and the things that really make a difference in winning and losing football games, that stuff is what really projects. The, the combine numbers are just, you know, that's window dressing for all of the sort of analytics that we do. The core of what we're talking about is what these guys can do on the football field. Matt, I want to run a theory by you because I've never been an official scout or been in a personnel department as you have. But my theory is this. Because of the unique circumstances that we have, it's the initial reports that the scouts did when they were at the games and then the guys who do excellent tape work who will serve their organizations a lot better in this draft and probably why some personnel departments and some GMs were asking for the draft to be moved backwards because they're they're upset that they will not be as prepared or as efficient as some of the other teams who do those things very well. Am I crazy to think that? No, you're not crazy at all. And I think that completely the reason why you had the, the Mickey Loomis, I know, in New Orleans, but also teams like the Jets and Giants and the 49ers, the teams that are more affected by this. They, I mean, I think in a really basic sense, even if you assume there's no difference in the amount of scouting versus analytics versus whatever else you want to classify into the process in there, no matter what you, you think about those percentages, I think the teams just don't want to be a situation where, hey, how come those guys in Tennessee can go into the office and I can't? and then they feel like they're falling behind. So it's almost like in college football, you know, you have your 20 hours of practice um, or, or organized time together, rather. I think that's kind of what's going on there. And they said, and Roger Goodell seems absolutely hell-bent on not pushing the draft back. So really quickly, they, they sent everybody home once there started to be any whispers of complaining about that. We're joined again by Matt Maticharian. He's the editor of the Sports Info Solutions Rookie Football, football, I'm sorry, football rookie handbook. You can check it out on Amazon.com if you want it. All right, let's start getting into the players a little bit, Matt, because that's really the nitty-gritty here. Um, let's start with this. When you look at these players and you guys put your grades and your rankings on them, how do you view positional value versus overall skills when you rank the guys at the top of this draft? I'm going cons- I'm, I'm to just consider Burrow and Young off the board one and two, and let's take two out of the mix too. Let's look at that group of Simmons, Okuda, uh, Derek Brown, and then like the four offensive tackles. How do you balance those guys in terms of overall grade on how they play and then the value of the positions that they play? Yeah, um, so it's really interesting you ask that. I think in terms of positional value, we talk about quarterbacks being in a league of their own. And then after that, you know, the key positions you traditionally look at are offensive tackle, pass rusher, and corner. Uh, recently you've seen a little bit of a shift in that, and I think somebody like Isaiah Simmons, when you see him play, you can see a lot of the reason why there is that shift. 
this guy, I mean, there's been a lot written about what he is physically, but I mean, as big as he is and as fast as he can run, all the, all the measurables and what he can do in his shorts, this is a guy that lines up everywhere from slot corner to free safety to in the box as a linebacker to as a pass rusher. So there's every level of the field that he's impacting you, and he's completely positionless, right? He's like, uh, you guys in New York, I'm sure you, you love watching the Knicks. Um, and, and how positionless their entire team is, right? Because they try to play with all power forwards. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> <I don't>... <laughs> okay. <laughs> Matt, Matt, by the way, I am a huge Nick fan. You are literally digging a dagger into my heart wow. right now. I appreciate that. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I, I mean, I'm saying that with Isaiah Simmons, I think you actually have something that could work, which is he is the future. He is a positional defender. Um, he is everything that Bill Belichick dreams about. Um, just being somebody that literally, you put him on the field, there's no sort of matchup problem that you can present to him. There's no player, no height, weight, speed that he can't cover. You want your Julian Edelman type? He's running with him. You want your big Gronk type? He can cover that too. Um, and he can play zone coverage. He can play as a pass rusher. Um, so somebody like that changes my, my thoughts about what positional value means. Classically, absolutely. Uh, Kuda. He, we have him graded out as an all-pro. We have, we have Isaiah Simmons graded out as, as an all-pro. And we have Derek Brown graded out as an all-pro. Now, the thing about him, where positionally people say, oh, do you want to draft a defensive tackle? A lot of people get hard on defensive tackles a lot of the time because they think they're just run players. That's not true at all. And I'm sure you guys saw that with Dexter Lawrence over the past year. Yep. This is a guy that come out. He was miscast. People think he's a big guy. Okay, he can't rush the passer. Turn the film on turn the film on. He was pushing the pocket at Clemson, and he pushed the pocket for the Giants. So, um, Derek Brown, I think, is uh, he's an even crazier version of that type because he's not a big fat guy. He's actually like proportioned like a defensive end. He's just big enough where he can where he can really body up with the big boys. Hey, Paul, 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 very quick. I want to follow up very quickly. Do you have the four offensive tackles at the top of this class, Matt, graded in the same area? as those three defenders you just mentioned, or are they a little bit below them simply on your grading scale? Right. On our grading scale, we have those three guys ahead of any of the tackles in this draft. Wow. We see the four, the four top tackles that I think most other people see. We see those guys as starters. We see those guys as probable first. We don't grade in terms of rounds. We grade in terms of what you're going to be on our team. And we grade those guys as all starting tackles. Andrew Thomas at the top of the class, followed by Wills and Wirfs, and then Becton the way that we have it stacked. Um, but for us, we would put those three defenders just in terms of um, the value of the player on the field above the offensive tackles. And then, uh, you know, as you get later in the first round, I'd be happy with any of those guys. I think they would be a reach with, with the Giants' first pick. Interesting. Well, Matt, let me go right to those offensive tackles. John and I spent an entire week in Indianapolis talking to everybody that we could possibly find about these four guys who were supposed to be graded ahead of everybody else at the position. And what did we find? Everybody wanted to pick a favorite, and they never picked the same guy. <laughs> 25, 25% picked one, 25% picked the other, and 25% picked number three and number four. Uh, here's my problem with that. When I can't get a consensus or at least an 85 to 90 percent agreement that there is one guy who's the best among all, then that tells me that that group is below the defensive players that you just talked about. To me, that is the the face first eyewitness evidence that says to me, you know what, if I can't get a consensus, those guys can't possibly be that good. 
man, you said the word consensus. Uh, there's nobody better at their jobs than NFL scouts. So, you know, these guys have incredible, you know, it's, it's, just because there's a low hit rate on NFL picks doesn't mean that these guys aren't doing their job well. There are a whole lot of things that go into whether you succeed or fail. And that consensus that you talk about, you don't, you don't talk to somebody that doesn't say Akuda's the number one corner in this draft. You don't talk to somebody no. that doesn't say, and that's not to say everybody's right all the time, but I know that when I've been in draft rooms that have hit on picks, it's because everybody in that draft room was on the same page about what they saw. And we had a shared conviction about it, not just, uh, oh, the GM thinks it, so we all better get on board. Or not just, oh, these guys like this guy, these guys like the other guy. That's when that's when I've seen misses happen. When when it, you know, you're trying to decide, you know, pick your pick your pony instead of just letting the film tell you what's going on. And I think you see prospects on defense that uh, are just they're bulletless. Where where you can you can poke holes in any of these four guys' games in terms of what they are. Now, each of them have different upsides that are, that are fantastic also, but you can poke holes for sure. And you know, Matt, it's funny because it was at Indianapolis when, when I came off the Giants taking one of the tackles at four and changed to Simmons, and I have been like a freight train on Simmons ever since because I believe you better darn well have a consensus when you're picking somebody that high. Yeah, absolutely. Um I don't know. I don't know where you guys are at on uh, on the the old number six pick last year, but for better or worse, the Giants seem to have consensus about where they wanted to go there. And I think uh, whatever your opinion of Daniel Jones is, the the organization's commitment to him has served him well. Yeah, no question about it. All right, now Matt, I, this is not necessarily my opinion, but allow me to play devil's advocate for a second. I've sat here for the last 10 years, nearly, going back to 2012, maybe, give or take, and the Giants have struggled to find an offensive tackle that plays above league average. And they simply do not become available in free agency. Depends what you think of Jack Conklin, but generally speaking, you're not going to find a Pro Bowl offensive tackle on the free agent market. You just don't. And if I go back to the last five or six draft classes, this is easily the best offensive tackle class that I've seen. And I think any of these three maybe four, depending on what you think of, you know, Becton and Wirfs, could be offensive tackle number one in any of the last four or five classes. So if I go and I pick an Isaiah Simmons, who's, like you said, a fantastic player, but you can find really good inside linebackers in free agency. Just look, you know, Corey, you know, Corey Littleton just went on. He's a great coverage linebacker. He was available this year. Am I going to be able to go out there and find maybe – Two offensive tackles next year. Who knows what's going to happen with Nate Solder's contract. Uh, Cameron Fleming only got signed for one year. You have a rookie quarterback. And I'm sitting there, and I don't know who my two offensive tackles are going to be in two years. That scares me. And that's why, again, this is just me playing devil's advocate, I think the argument for going offensive tackle in this situation. You know what? I, I, I don't disagree with you. When it comes to team building, I like to build the quarterback first, and then I really like to build up front. So, you know, I talked about the four people talking about corners as being a, a neat position. Some people these days talk about wide receivers. I don't buy that. I would rather build up front on offense and defense, not just guys that affect the run game, but I think guys up front, you know, from my playing experience, I can tell you as a free safety, I couldn't affect the run game and the pass game the way a great defensive tackle that I played with could. So um, I, think, I think I agree with you, and I, I'd never want to be in a position where I'm advocating not building the offensive tackle position, especially with that young quarterback. That said, the other thing I'm never going to do is advocate drafting for need. No, you have that's to fair too. the best player available. You have to do that. And if you know you're going to get good value trading down more often than not, which is still the case 
in the NFL. That teams that you know we do this study every year, and the teams that trade down get accumulate more value than the teams that trade up on average. That's not to say there aren't trade ups that work. But on average, we see that. So I think if you're sitting there and you're really starving from a team-building perspective for an offensive tackle and you're in a situation where you're not crying out for, I need Andrew Thomas and not Mekhi Bechtin, or I need Worf, you know, if there's not one guy that, that for some reason you think is, is your guy, we don't have these guys graded as better than all the offensive tackles in the last five years. Okay. We have them a little better than the guys from last year's class, but I, we don't have this as a – as you know, this this generational class of tackles, we we have some guys that are going to be good pros based on the way that we grade them out. So I, I would try to move down if, from a team building perspective, you wanted to try to land one of these guys uh, in in you know the the ten to fifteen range in the draft. Then I think you're picking up some value, and I think you can you can recoup value when you try to think about the the players that are going to be available at some of the depth positions in this draft later. Well, Matt, let me extend the plywood here just a little bit, okay? Uh, You're telling us that these offensive tackles don't grade maybe as high as top 10 and they're a little bit lower. Well, let me ask you this. Do you think that there's going to be uh, offensive tackles, and John and I have our opinions about this from being in Indianapolis, do you think there'll be offensive tackles at the top of round two when the Giants pick it at 36? That would be considered, hey, Guy can come in, he can start, he's not going to go to a Pro Bowl, but the guy's good enough to start, and he's going to be an improvement over what you have. And at the same time, do you think there's going to be any pass rushers who might be in that spot? Because it does seem to me that there's got a better chance of getting a tackle than you do a pass rusher there. Yeah, um, so two guys two guys that jump out right away when I think about could be available there that I think I'd be excited about if I'm the Giants. Josh Jones out of Houston, uh, he's a guy that really separated himself at the Senior Bowl. He had a really great show in there, uh, probably as good as any offensive tackle that was there. He's much more suited to play on the left side rather than the right side, really more of a pass protector than a run blocker. But I think uh, you know that can work with the way that, that the Giants are, are constructed in their backfield. Um, love him in terms of what he is athletically, um, and pretty impressive, you know, uh, no holds, just one false start this past year. Only three blown blocks the entire year, and zero of those were in the passing game. So uh, some really good advanced analytics on him there. Um, another guy, not as much people, I haven't heard as many people talking about, Prince Tega Winogo out of Auburn. We also have a good grade on him. Another guy who's a good athlete. Um, maybe has a little bit more uh, development to go to his game, but he'd be a guy that, that'd also be interesting to me kind of in that range. Uh, looking ahead to the third round, I don't know if you guys have looked into Ben Barch at all. Um, yeah, to St. John's, small right? Deep, yeah. small, St. John's, Minnesota. Uh, not St. John's from Queens. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> But uh, he really showed out. Um, really, when you get those guys that, that can perform like that at the Senior Bowl, um, I was impressed by that. It's always hard to, to go out on a limb. I, I, probably, I wouldn't take him in round two, but I'd start thinking about him in round three um, in terms of being a guy there. Um, after that, it does get thin at offensive tackle. Um, from the pass rushers, man, uh, you know, I don't think there's much, you know, last year it seemed like all the defensive linemen and edges for days. We have Chase Young with the top grade in our book. He's a 7.3. That's a, you know, he should, we have him graded higher than Nick Bosa, just to give you an idea of what we think Mm. of him as a prospect. Um, But then the other guys that I think would be more in the range that we're looking at here, uh, Terrell Lewis from Alabama, um, if he's still around at that point, I think he's an explosive, really good pass rusher that can play off the edge. Um, I look at Yuturg Gross Matos. 
uh, from Penn State. Mm-hmm. Um, another guy that, that's been a productive college player. Um, everybody knows, uh, I think, about A.J. Epinefsa, another guy, really uber-productive college player, very stout, more of kind of like a traditional left defensive end type, um, more so than a pass rusher. And then Kalebon Chason out of LSU, uh, tough kid. They gave him the number 18 jersey down there. And he's just edge speed all day long. Um, he doesn't have a lot of variety to his pass rush game, but he does have the kind of twitch and get off that can be uh, difference making for you there. So in terms of on the edge there, um, those are all guys that I consider in that second round range. Matt, Matt is that too high for Aquara? For me, it is. For me, I, I didn't see Aquara the, the same way some other people did. Um, I see the argument for him, but um, we we had him we had him graded a little bit a little bit lower. Um, I think he's more of a depth player when it comes to it on the NFL level. Uh, I, I like the speed, um, but I really think he's mostly just a third-down player uh, in terms of just his play strength, ability to set the edge and, and, and shed blocks. Uh, needs to develop a little bit more variety, I think, um, and a little bit kind of, kind of round out his skill set a little bit more. Uh, for me. So we, we were a little bit lower on him than other people are. Matt, a couple other offensive linemen, I want to throw the names at you, and you can just give me bullet points on where you have them in your draft uh, rankings and just kind of your thoughts on the players. People have tried to sell me on Lucas Niang, that he dealt with that hip injury in his final year. You go back to his tape from two years ago, he looked really good, and he, you know, he said at the Combine that he couldn't even pass it this year because of his hip injury, and that kind of maybe messed him up. You have Ezra Cleveland out of Boise State, who had a real good physical showing at the Combine. And then um, Austin Jackson out of USC. I watched his tape. I was impressed until I saw him face A.J. Epinesa in the bowl game, and he got his butt whooped the whole game. So give, give me your thoughts on those three guys and where you think their value might be in this draft. Yeah, I know you told me that uh, your copy of the Football Rookie Handbook got stuck in the office, and you guys obviously are out of the office right now. But we, we went through the top six offensive tackles, and you just named number seven, eight, and nine in, my, in the book. Uh, so, so, and they all, they all actually have identical grades. They're all wow. 6.6 grade level. So that's, that's a starter who plays just one position. So we see those guys as starters, not necessarily high upside right away. I'll give you just the bullets. Austin Jackson, all kinds of athletic ability. He is raw, raw. You know, third-year junior, you see he's thin. You saw him just get manhandled a little bit by Epinepsa in that game. I know the exact film that you're talking about. So you get concerned when you see that stuff. But in terms of a guy with the frame and the athletic upside to become a high-level tackle, you know, this guy looks like what left tackles look like. Um, Ezra Cleveland from Boise State, another guy, really good athlete, needs to work on that anchor a little bit more, needs to work on the finishing ability. So I want to see a little bit more stoutness there from him. But, again, I think he ends up kind of – probably being a guy that can play on the left side. And Lucas Niang, another guy, um, again, throw him right into that same range. Good athleticism, a little bit better with the anchor than some of these other guys, a little bit less in terms of the athletic upside with him. He's a little bit of a bigger guy, uh, can overextend at times. You like to see a guy bend at the knees and not, not only at the waist a little bit more. But, but overall, these guys, uh, you're locked in on these offensive tackles, clearly. So, Matt, very quickly, so you have those guys kind of end the round two, start of round three range? Yeah, you know, like I said before, we do it right. by, we do it by gotcha. position. But the, the way the grades stack out, those guys would be probably uh, late round two type guys, yeah. 
Yeah, well, with the Giants not having a pick between the beginning of round two and then the compensatory in round three, that would be a large Bermuda Triangle that they'd have to try to navigate (laughs) if they were going to get one of those guys. Uh, Matt, let let me just throw something out at you because John knows this. I think mock drafts are there for one thing, to be mocked. And there are people (laughs) who continue who continue to project the Giants taking a wide receiver in the first round. Look, I have no idea what it is that they're taking for breakfast, lunch, or dinner. But why in the world would anybody think the Giants would take a receiver in round number one? You know, <laughs> I'm with you on mock drafts. It's tough for me. I take this stuff seriously. This, this has been my job for 12 years now, whether with a team or somewhere else. Uh, you know, you look, at, you look at the Giants in terms of uh, – we do team breakdown pages uh, for each team, and you look at kind of where they were strong and where they were weak in different position groups last year. Uh, you look at wide receiver, not one of their strong positions, but also not one of those clear positions where you're looking to upgrade right now. I think people sometimes think that um, quarterbacks, you know, you get them a good target and all of a sudden it cures all as if there's not pass protection that has to happen before you get the ball out of there. Um, but, you know, there's the fans. You know, they miss their Odell. And uh, they want their they want their wide receivers and their Victor Cruz touchdown dances and and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> I'd be pretty excited about Slayton the way he played last year. Yeah, good absolutely. Good and I'll tell you what, Matt, this is such a deep class, and I've been I've been trying to preach this to fans that even want to take a wide receiver at the top around too. That look, this class is so deep. You might be getting a second round talent that can start for you day one. At the end of round three, this class is so deep. Okay, now I'm sure that you got one of the books because literally, uh, <laughs> I did it. Literally, we we grade out eight guys as as guys that, that are either number one or number two wide receivers, which basically corresponds with with the first round grade. We could see seven or eight guys that deserve to go in that range when you stack it out, and then we see another twelve, uh, no, another fifteen guys that slot in as basically like number three type wide receivers in the NFL. And then another 12 guys after that that slot in it, slot in as like number four type wide receivers. So altogether, we have 37 wide receivers in this class graded out as being a wide receiver number one through four on an NFL team by the first game of their second season. So you are 100% on the money. Now, you're not getting Jerry Judy and CeeDee Lamb late in the draft. There's, There's a difference between what you're getting. But I think you got... Uh, at least, uh, you know, anywhere in the three to five range of receivers that are difference makers. I think you've got seven or eight that are no doubt starters, and that's before you were even getting to James Prochet and K.J. Hamler, guys that can be really, really strong weapons that, that I think are there uh, all on, on day two for sure. And then you look kind of everybody, if, if everybody is picking a wide receiver, you know, if every team picks a wide receiver, there are still some of these guys available. So I think when it comes to the seventh round, you're still going to have guys that can be contributors on your team at the wide receiver position. So the more you can be patient, and this isn't, this is unique to this year in the sense of the magnitude, but what's not unique to every year is no matter what team I've been with, and this goes true with our draft board too, when you get to the end of the draft and all the magnets have come down, you've pulled off all those ones that were taken, the positions that you're going to have left over are always going to be running back and wide receiver because those guys exist. Football players that are good at running back and wide receiver play those positions from the time they're in Pop Warner, and those guys exist. They, there's a lot of athletes that are six foot and 210 pounds or, or whatever size you're talking about. The guys that are 6'6 six, six and 3'10 and still athletic, <laughs> those are the rare ones. That's where you got to yeah. spend your draft capital.
Well, and conversely, you can always find an undrafted rookie free agent safety who's got a chance to make your team as well. And it's the same philosophy you're talking about. Yep, absolutely. I, I, I agree with you there. And as a former safety, it pains me to say, and I'm not saying that valuable safeties aren't valuable. Nobody's going to complain about right. Ed Reed. Everybody can look at Tyron Matthew and what he meant to the Chiefs in their Super Bowl run. But you can get by with, with, with a guy back there. Um, and by the way, that's probably why my coach put me at safety. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Matt, now we've been talking obviously very specific to the Giants' angle here, but let me go to the big elephant that's sitting in the room, and that is the quarterback spot. In your opinion, how many top five talent grades are amongst this quarterback class. Everybody seems to think that two or three may go in the top five picks because teams are going to trade up to try to get these guys, and obviously the Giants at four would be one of the teams that might be involved in a deal. But from a talent perspective, are there really enough guys worth it that people should be climbing ladders to go get them? From a talent perspective, Joe Burrow and Tua Tango-Bailoa are as good quarterback prospects as I've seen uh, in the past couple years, save for, like, your Andrew Lux of the world. Um, Joe Burrow, you can complain about. It's really only one year of production. Why didn't he beat out some of these other guys he competed with at Ohio State? Um, Sure, but anybody who watched LSU play last year and has really studied the film on him saw he just put together the most ridiculous season. All the advanced stats are just kind of a joke when you you put them next to other other things. Um, You know, you want to poke holes. Maybe the supporting cast was so good. Um, but, but honestly, I think it's hard to make a case that Joe Burrow shouldn't be the number one pick. And then two with Tango Bailoa, I put right there with him. You know, I had an argument with my two scouting lieutenants, Nathan Cooper and John Todd, who do all the cross-checks um, along with our whole scouting department here. And we went back and forth on this one because I, I really believe if Tua didn't get injured at that time, I was leaning t- towards Tua. Um, now, since that time, Joe Burrow threw, you know, a thousand touchdowns in the semifinal game and, and, you know, led the team to whatever. So it's hard to argue against him, but two is just, he's right there for me as a prospect. And we have an injury department here where all of our video scouts that watch every game, we have at least four guys watch every game that goes on and they mark any potential injury event that happens. So anything from, you know, the hip dislocation to little dings, dings and, uh, you know, maybe somebody takes an awkward hit or lands awkwardly, anything like that. That's all getting marked. And our injury expert, John Veros, he reviews all the film of all these injury events, and he's got a kinesiology background, and he's pretty bullish on Tua's recovery. Um, obviously, he's not looking at the, the MRIs that the doctors are getting a look at, but really when you look at Tua and all the concerns, um, there's the stature, and, you know, scouts, we're always going to look at that to begin with and be worried about a guy that's smaller in stature. But then you've really got two high ankle sprains, which is really just uh, a kind of fluky thing. Anybody can sprain their ankle. One of them he literally got stepped on, um, and they tried to do these these kind of uh, surgeries to bring him back quicker from these ankle sprains, these uh, tight, what do they call them, tightrope surgeries. But these are really non-invasive surgeries. There's no sort of long-term injury risk there. So the only one becomes, the, you know, the Bo Jackson fear. And this seems like from start to now, like it's been handled completely differently from Bo Jackson. Like they had the blood flow return immediately. There haven't been issues. This also seems like it's a freak thing where 
you know, the way John says it is, it's not that it won't affect him, but this can be a Drew Brees situation where we don't think about the fact that Drew Brees landed on his shoulder 15 years ago and, you know, how is that going to affect Drew Brees anymore because he's been able to maintain it over the years. He's been able to be proactive about it. So for me, those two guys are in a league of their own. I would jump at the opportunity to pick those two guys. As good as Chase Young is, I would even have a hard time taking him above those two guys just because of the positional value of quarterback. Um, but then Justin Herbert, for me, along with Jordan Love, we've got a, a significant gap there. We go from the 6.9 grade range, that's a high-end starter, down to the 6.6 grade, grade range, which is uh, a guy that's borderline. You can win with him, you can win in spite of him, kind of. That's where we see Herbert and Love, and they're kind of similar prospects. A lot to like athletically from both of them, but a lot of question marks in the way both of those guys process. And the processing for me is always going to be the thing that, that I harp on with quarterbacks. I really believe it's the accuracy, the decision-making, the leadership, the ability to make people around you better that I'm going to take over the arm strength, as impressive as the arm strength with those two guys is. Yeah, Matt, I'm with you 100% on all that in terms of evaluating quarterbacks. I think people fall in love with the arm strength sometimes when really, in, when, when it comes down to it, 90% of your passes you throw – as long as you can make them, that's all that really matters. So I think really processing and that decision-making is most important. Last one for me, once again, we're joined by Matt Maticharian. He is the editor of the SIS Football Rookie Handbook 2020. You can check it out and, and purchase it wherever you find your books and Amazon.com, of course, and there aren't any bookstores open, so you better buy it online. Um, <laughs> final one for me, Matt. Who are some of the guys that maybe you guys in the scouting you've done and some of the deep numbers and deep digging you've done on some of the analytics that you really like in this class that you maybe think the league might be sleeping on a little bit? Ooh, that's a really good question. Who are the guys that, that I think are the sleepers here? Yeah. Um, Your outliers. Some of the outliers. Uh, that's a really good question. I don't think about it in terms of who our outliers are so much as I think about it in terms of who we think the good players are. I'm trying to think who, who other people are high on that maybe we're not as high on. Um, this is a good question. I think you might have stumped me. Um, <laughs> I will take that as a win. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. yeah, seriously. Um, you know, the more time goes on, the more, the more I really do find that, that uh, things seem to match more and more over the years. Um, in terms of the, uh, the analytics, there might be some guys that are kind of surprising in the way that they stand out. Uh, you know, a, a name that I don't think is going to be taken off the board anytime early, uh, but, you know, uh, from Washington State, uh, we have their quarterback, Anthony Gordon. He's, he's our ninth quarterback on the list um, in terms of guys here. So probably about where he goes in the draft. I could see him being like a sixth-round pick. But um, in terms of the analytics and what this guy's put uh, on, on the field this year, um, he's up there. He's number two in terms of total points, which is our total value statistic for college players, kind of measuring not what you're going to do, but what you did. So he slots in right there behind Joe Burrow. Well, Joe Burrow's at 251. Gordon's all the way down at 180. But he, he slots in at number two there. Um, and then another guy to keep an eye on at the quarterback position, not a surprise name, but a name that I don't think anybody really knows what to do with, and that's Jalen Hurts. I think that Jalen Hurts, for me, um, I think he becomes like a Taysom Hill on the next level. I don't think you want to try to slide him in as a starting-type quarterback, but I do think that he has the sort of skill set where he can transform an offense. You know, we were talking about positionless defense a little bit before. I think what would be really scary is if you started to see some more positionless type of offense where you start to get 
multiple athletes on the field. You know, we saw that that Heisman package with RG3 and Lamar Jackson a little bit. But imagine Lamar Jackson on the field at the same time as Jalen Hurts and, and making a defensive player, a defensive coordinator prepare for that. Um, I think you can do some really fun stuff with that sort of thing. So that's that's one weapon that, that I want to keep an eye on to see where he goes. Matt, I'm going to wrap this up with my final question, which kind of goes back to one of the generalities we were talking about at the beginning of the program, and that is because of this very strange offseason where these draft picks are going to come in and they basically have to hit the ground running. They are not going to get the rookie camps and the OTAs and all the stuff that they're supposed to get as they acclimate to the NFL how important do you think it's going to be for these teams when they start making these draft picks that they pick guys who they believe are as close to just adding water as they can find? Guys who came from pro systems, guys who maybe they have connections to in college because they're able to get more details about those guys. Guys who are said to have high football acumens so that they may be able to pick stuff up quickly and give you something earlier in their rookie seasons as opposed to becoming pro red shirts. Yeah. Um, no, that's a good word you use, redshirt there. That's one that, that, that Sean Payton would certainly use to describe certain players and, and you know, the kind of the plan for them. Um, you always want guys that you can fit into your first-year plan, but the fact is that really when you look at it, it's pretty rare for rookies to make huge contributions uh, in big numbers. Most teams only really get big contributions from one or two players a lot of the time. Uh, you know, the Giants obviously, you know, with the quarterback playing, but uh, in growing pains with the corner playing uh, his first season last year, and, and you see that sort of stuff. So really I, that's part of the why I say best player available over need um, is because you want to get towards thinking about getting good players and not needing guys that are going to come in in year one to be contributors because really you're drafting them to be contributors in years two, three, four, um, and then hopefully sign them to a second contract. So I, I prefer to think of it that way, but then to get a little more nuanced about your question, I think if you're uh, somebody that's doing something very complicated, you guys used to have Spagnolo in New York. I worked with Spags. He's down in Kansas City now. I know that he's only going to be able to work with very smart defensive players. They're going to have to be able to do a million adjustments, whether they're playing defensive tackle because they're going to be asked to drop back in his own blitz, or they're playing corner, and the same coverage could be run 20 different ways depending on the look that you get in the backfield, for example. So somebody like that, whereas I worked with Greg Williams, Greg Williams didn't care. He said, you cover that guy, right? You, like, you cover that guy, it doesn't matter. So it depends what you're doing to an extent. And then it depends the position. Running backs on offense, that's the position that I care about it the least. I think that, you know, most of the time you can get by with the quarterback telling the running back what to do back there um, as well as it is. When it comes to the quarterback and tight ends, I think those are the most difficult positions to play. And luckily we have, you know, a lot of these seven-on-seven camps and things like that now. So receivers are becoming more ready-made to plug and play than they used to be. And the real challenge becomes trying to draft a tackle that you're going to ask to start on day one for you because these guys just don't see NFL style pass rushes and pass protection schemes so that can that can be a colossal challenge so it depends on the position group what you're looking for there but really I'd prefer to try to not rely on these guys at all and look at any production they give me as a bonus Matt, terrific spot, man. We had a lot of fun. I hope you did, too. We definitely want to have you on down the road. We actually do about, depending on how they mess with the combine schedule next year, either three or four live shows in Indy. If you're out there, we'd love to have you on and then certainly talk to you down the cool. phone, down the line, all right? Yeah, that'd be awesome to catch up in person, too. So, yeah. 
Uh, let me know anytime. I had a great time, you guys. Appreciate it, Matt. Absolutely. Matt, Matt Acharian, thank, thank you very much. Does an excellent job. Just a fantastic spot right there. And again, if you want to find the book, make sure you go check it out. You can find it on Amazon.com. have it right here. It's called the SIS Football Rookie Handbook 2020. He's the editor, and he is the football research um and sports at it's sports info solutions vice president so make sure uh you check out the book and i might have to frankly and he he joked about it i bought a copy of this book to check it out i thought it'd be a nice companion um to some of the stuff that pro football focus does dame brugler's draft guide which should be out shortly and then i left it on my desk in the office on the last day that they made us clean all our stuff out and I'm not going to be able to go back and get it. So I might even end up buying another copy because that, Paul, frankly, that spot was so good. I kind of want to see what information's in the book. <laughs> I don't blame you, John. You're going to try to break in? Oh, I'm not, no, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> I, I, instead of breaking into the office, I might have to break out the old credit card again is, is, is what I might end up having to do. Uh, but no, I thought that was great stuff, Paul. Yeah, he was really, really good. And, and I love the fact that, that you know he understood the perception of, of, of how all of these pieces fit into the overall perspective when these guys are looking to, at these draft picks. Yeah, some of the stuff is numbers. Some of it is analytics. But there's a lot of film work involved, a lot of leg work involved, a lot of football knowledge involved. He understands there's a lot of pieces in that pizza, and I, I appreciated that. Yeah, me too. All right, uh, well, let's break it down because I think we haven't kind of had – you know, between since we left the combine, Paul, we jumped right into free agency. Then we've had so many guests on the shows. I don't think me and you have really had like a long talk about the draft since we left Indianapolis, to be quite honest with you. So I think this is kind of a, a good a good day now. We're just under three weeks away from the Thursday night of the NFL draft. So we're getting there, and as we get closer and we kind of run through all our college guys, we'll have more of these conversations. But I think this is a good time heading into the weekend to kind of take a pause and take a larger look at kind of where we are. So let's start at the top because I think people kind of know where you are, and I think right now you have a big bullseye on Isaiah Simmons, right? Yes. Explain why. Well, I think as I, as I quizzed Matt earlier – it just seems to me that he's going to have by far the best player available grade at number four when the Giants are up. And it just so happens to be at a position that they could use badly as well. When those two things match, it becomes a no-brainer. And then on top of that, as part of my, my quiz to him or my inquiry to him was <laughs> it seems pretty much unanimous. Everybody says he's one of the top three defensive players in this draft, and he's the top defensive player at his position. We can't get anything close to even a 50-50 split on the top two offensive tackles. That's a problem for me, John. You know me. I'm a paisan. I need conviction. <laughs> All right? There's conviction about Simmons. Yeah, and look, I, I, Paul, look, I, I don't know where I'm landing yet. I'm still kind of figuring it out. If he's right and those four offensive tackles don't end up, none of them end up becoming a perennial pro bowler or all pro, then it would be a mistake to take one of them at four. I'm not convinced that's going to be the case. But then the trick is, which guy? And I think that goes back to your conviction point where there isn't, a consensus here as to which guy, you know, is the best of the four. And I agree. I feel like we're revisiting the Saquon Barkley conversation all over again, where, you know, inside linebacker, much like running back, generally speaking, is not considered that high value 
um, premium position traditionally. Now, I agree with Matt that I think Simmons, given his unique skill set, his ability to cover, play safety, play slot, rush the passer, he might break that mold a little bit, which is why, you know, the same way Barkley people would argue with his receiving ability maybe broke the mold at running back a little bit. And if I, again, we're not in the building, so I haven't talked to anybody with the team. This is just my guess based on the way Dave Gettleman's operated. If I had to guess right now who he would pick, if everybody not named uh, Tua, uh, Burrow, and Chase Young are on the board, I believe he would take Simmons based on the way he's drafted in the past and, you know, with the best available player. So I see where you're coming from, but, and this was my devil's advocate question to Matt in the interview, you have a quarterback, Paul, that you're trying to develop, right? And he's a guy you don't want to get smacked around and get hit. You have a running back that you want to feature as part of your offense. You want to block for him, right? And I know how hard it is to find really good offensive tackles. And I like to look ahead and see where the team's going to be at a position in, in a year or two. Mm-hmm. And I look at offensive tackle, and frankly, I get really, really, really nervous. And that's fair. Which is why I've tried to explain to people for literally months now, since the combine, and that is a couple of months now, I've tried to explain to people that the Giants are in an awesome position because they have three ways they can go, John, and all three ways are logical. None of them can be second-guessed until somebody after the fact wants to play Monday morning quarterback a year or two down the line and then throw bows and arrows at them, which, of course, all Monday morning quarterbacks do anyway. It's inherent (laughs) in how they perform. Of course. But here's the deal. From a logical perspective, the Giants will win if Simmons is there and they take him. They will win if they decide that they want to take the best offensive tackle and that guy turns out to be good. And they will win if they trade down a few spots and wind up with the best offensive tackle because I don't think Simmons will be there if they trade down to 7, 8, or 9 or somewhere in the top 10. I think Simmons will be gone. And by the way, Paul, I, w- I want to throw number four out there. If they happen to draft Jeffrey Okuda and he ends up being a top three cornerback in the NFL, that's a win too, by the uh, way. Oh, uh, Yeah, because, you know, the guy is supposed to be a can't-miss blue-chip Pro Bowl player. So, So here's the thing. They've got so many logical ways to go, and that very rarely happens in this game, John, where you can literally say, A, B, C, and you want to throw D out there? I'll accept that. All of these roads make perfect sense, and anybody who criticizes any one of the roads that they take is being a fool because on the face of it, there is very strong logic for any one of those selections. So, I, you know, when you had said to me originally, and, and, and you've leaned towards the offensive tackle, look, I am the biggest proponent of offensive linemen probably on the entire broadcast team, outside of maybe O'Hara and Deal, who I think <laughs> I, can match, I can match up with in terms of my desire for offensive linemen. But I have decided that, for me, it's got to be Simmons. And I will add one other thing here, too. Dave Gettleman is a best player available guy. We both know that. We know the Giants historically are a best player available team. Well, they've got a responsibility to themselves when they get up and look in the mirror to take the guy who is truly the best player available at four. You must, when you're picking that high in the draft, make sure that whoever it is that you take is a kick-butt superstar. And if they don't think Simmons is that guy, 
if honest to goodness, Dave Gettleman does not think he is that guy, then he shouldn't take him no matter how hard I scream. Yeah, Paul, honestly, I, I, I'm with you. And you know me, I like to have conviction. I could not have a problem with the Giants selecting any of you know the six or seven players we've talked about. If they pick Okuda, great. If they pick Chase Young, great. If they pick Simmons, great. If they think whatever one of those four offensive tackles is the best, they pick them, great. And I, I don't. I, I think it's impossible to your point to have a beef with any of them. I, I really do. I just don't see it, given you know the quality of the players and the needs that the Giants have. So I'm with you there. Have you had a chance yet? To look at the top four offensive tackles, how do you have those guys ranked for you? I have a a a, a question on each one of those guys. Okay, but 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 uh, but I'll be honest with you. Break it down for me. For me, for me, Becton would be the number one guy out of the four because and of upside. Upside. It's, it's just that simple. Because see, at that point, I need to know that that guy is going to be a kick butt pro. And his upside, I think everybody does agree, he may have the highest upside of the four. That may be the only thing people agree about. Yeah, but there is some risk there, though. I, I, I know, but see, I think there's a little bit of risk on every one of the four. And if there's going to be a small risk on every one of the four, then I want the guy with the best upside. Okay, well, let me put it this way then. What, if you can do it quickly, because I want to get to a couple other big-time draft things first, and I'll give you mine. I have the guys right now one through four. This is how I have it. Okay. I think Wills is my favorite guy. Yeah, You know, the one thing that Pat Flaherty and O'Hara and Deal have hammered into me like a nail into floorboards is that you have to play with inside hands. Yep. You have to punch, right? Yep. And I think of all four of these guys, Jedrick Wills gets inside hands the most. And he is his technique with his hands is great. Um, I think he has the athleticism to play right or left. I think he would slot in a right tackle right away. Uh, for the Giants, he'd be good there. I think he's a truck in the run game. As someone pointed out to me, we know those Alabama offensive line prospects, they get banged up sometimes, right? Mm-hmm. Well, he's only been in that program three years, and he's only started for two. So maybe there's a little less wear and tear on the tires for Wills. So he's my number one. I think technically he's good, and he's just as good of an athlete as the other guys. I think the second choice is interesting because I agree. Becton's the upside guy. There's technique with him, though I actually think his pass protection and his kick slide is actually pretty good, to be quite honest with you. It's not bad. Yeah, but look, Sean O'Hara pointed out a bunch of things to me that I'm not smart enough and a good enough offensive line guy to see. (laughs) So I trust him on that, you know, like crossing the feet on zone runs and things like that. So he says there's a lot of technical issues. I believe that. Andrew Thomas seems like such a safe player to me. He's so sound, and every you watch his tape, every single set looks the same, and he just doesn't get beat. You know, Caleb on is going to be a top twenty pick. He dominated him in that game against LSU late in the year. So I think they're kind of tied for second for me. If you want the safe player, pick Thomas. If you want to roll the dice a little bit, you pick Becton. And then I honestly have Worfs as my fourth guy. You know. We left the combine saying with those athletic numbers, boy, he's definitely a tackle. Then I went back and I watched him on tape, and I understand why heading into the combine, people said they think he might be a guard. Just the way he blocks, I think he has the most work to do technique-wise, which to me was a surprise given the college program he came out of, Iowa, where they coach offensive linemen so well. Mm -hmm. So that's where I have it. I have Wills, then Thomas and Becton, Chef's Choice, and then I have Worfs as number four. 
I would have Becton, Thomas, Wills, and Wirfs in that order. What are your big concerns with with the guys? If you can go through them quickly. Well, the re the, well, I'm going Thomas number two behind Becton because he's played both at a very big program yep. and effectively played both left side and right side. And I do believe that I'd rather see the tape. I don't want to project that Wills can play on the left side because I, I I need to see. It. No, that's fair. And by the way, Thomas also in a pro offense at Georgia too. Correct. A big-time program mm-hmm. in the SEC, which may have as many as half of the first-round picks this year. Okay? So I think that uh, Thomas has the athleticism. He's got the proof that he's played both sides. I don't think he's an overpowering guy who is going to be a super stud, but I think he's going to be real good for a long time. I agree with you. And, and so for me, I think he's the safest pick of the four. So I'm going to take a little gamble because Beckton's got the highest upside, and I agree, technique is a little bit sloppy but highest upside. Then I'm taking the safest guy, number two. Number three, I'm going to go Wills because I also believe that Wirfs is going to be better off playing guard than he is going to be playing tackle. And that's a problem for me because if I'm taking a guy at four and he winds up being a guard after I drafted him as a tackle, I'm a bit disappointed. And and I also, both of those guys are right side guys too. True. That's true. You know, and, I, I, yeah. you know, again, give me the most value, the most bang for my buck if I'm picking it four. And neither one of those guys are going to give me the most bang for my buck. I don't think so. Now, I think Worfs can play tackle long term, but I think he has to work on stuff to get there. So that's why I'm with you. That's why I have him um, at number four because he's a really good athlete. But I think he has to clean up a lot of stuff in order to kind of be that tackle long term. OK, so I think. We kind of have a consensus there. Anyone else, just before we move on, Paul, even sneak into consideration for you at number four, or or is that kind of where the line's drawn? Well, I mean, come on. I think we both know that if know. younger Okuda drops, well, of you'd have to think about it. Of course. But other than that, no. I, I'm, I'm not even looking anywhere else. And I'll tell you something else, too. Be, again, conviction. If the Giants have conviction on a guy, just like they did on Barkley, and just like they did on Daniel Jones, then just take the guy. Don't get fancy. Don't trade down. I know they could go down two or three spots and pick up maybe a second-round pick. I understand that. Don't do it. If you have conviction, go get the guy. I would be okay trading down a few spots. Um, but like, And this is the point I've been making from the beginning, Paul, and I'm standing by it. I'm not sure if you've come on board with me yet. If Tua is off the board at four, I don't think there will be a good trade-down opportunity. Well, we all believe that the Dolphins at five are the team that wants him. So if they go up with Detroit and make a deal and go get him, well, then there's really no reason to even think about making a trade out of four. Right. And I don't, you know, isn't it funny? You said to me, what, two months ago, I guess Daniel Jeremiah told you he thought the Lions weren't married to Stafford and they may take a quarterback. Do you want to know something funny, John? I had a a scout tell me this week. Get out of here. Don't be shocked. If the Lions take Tua. No way. Yes. Really? Yes. Because, because honestly, I, I I had told you on the air a couple weeks ago that that rumor kind of, you know, piddled away and I wasn't taking it seriously. I didn't take it seriously at the Combine either. And then I got told by somebody this week, uh, don't be shocked because after this season, Stafford's economic numbers make him a cuttable quarterback. Hmm. And for that reason... Besides the fact that he can sit for a year, Tua won't have to play this year, he would then be coming into the starting lineup in year two 
after sitting and watching for a season, which is the way they used to do it in the olden days. Remember that? Yeah, <laughs> a little before your time, John, right? <laughs> I'll come on, stop it. <laughs> and, uh, and on top of that, it might also give Patricia a little bit of room because, oh, I didn't take the defensive guy. You know, I really wanted the defensive guy, but I understood for the betterment of the franchise, we took the quarterback, and we're going to groom the quarterback for next year. That, that in Patricia's mind, may buy him some, some loose rope to be able to uh, come back in 2021, regardless of their record. It's an interesting thought. It was presented to me this week. I don't know if I buy it, but I can understand somebody trying to float that. Yeah, because it is impossible to move off of Stafford this year. He has to be Can't on the roster one more year because, do of, because of the economics of it. Correct. But, yeah, to your point, if you want a red shirt, too, and by the way, we should point out, uh, Ian Rappaport and Garofolo reported on Thursday that uh, Tua Tangavailoa had his medical recheck or whatever is going to constitute <laughs> a medical recheck in today's day and age. And um, apparently it was as, as good, I believe, uh, the quote from Garofolo was as, as good as could have been expected. Or something like that. So um, whatever type of clearance that he's gotten uh, will have to suffice with the lack of these visits. All right, Paul, let's let's jump to round number two here. If we go a little long, we can. I just want to finish this, this conversation. I feel less confident than you about the level of offensive tackle in the second round. And here's why. And it goes back to your point in the first round. To me, there's very little consensus about this next group of offensive tackles. Some people like Josh Joe. Some people don't like Josh Joe. Some people really like Austin Jackson. Some people don't like Austin Jackson. Same for Niang, Ezra Cleveland, Isaiah Wilson. People are all over the maps on these guys. And I think there is a bust factor and potential if you go with one of those tackles at the top of the second round, especially if it's not Jones, who I think probably is the next best consensus guy with Jackson after him. I agree. Once you get past Jones and Jackson, and I have my concerns about Jackson, I told you, Paul, mm-hmm. you got you have to go back and watch that USC-Iowa game. A.J. Epinesa just basically takes out the receipt and owns the kid the whole game. He, mm-hmm. he kills him. Mm-hmm. So I'm a little worried about that offensive tackle class at the top of round two. I'm not saying there's not – one of those guys is going to be good. I don't know which guy is going to be good. Yeah, it's and, and you know what, John? It's very fair and logical to make that statement. The difference for me is that's pick 36, of it's course. not pick four. And that makes sense. You know, I'm willing to, to be a little bit more flexible there with my requirements and demands at 36. At four, I need conviction. At 36, I need to be pretty sure. Okay, <laughs> and, that, and that's fair, but how about this? What if you have, and I, I, I promise you you're probably going to, you're going to sit there at 36. You're going to have a wide receiver with a much higher grade than any of those offensive tackles. You know, you're probably going to have a cornerback with a higher grade than those offensive tackles. Um, do you then lean more towards need there, even if you have a more highly a higher graded player at a different position than that offensive tackle spot? If that specific instance occurs, no problem. I'm trading down. That's simple. Well, what if you can't? 
Uh, I would think someone's going to want to jump up to 36. Don't you believe that? Eh, not necessarily. 30, 36 is still a premium uh, prize there. You're just on the edge of the first round. And if there if there are rod receivers or corners on the Giants board who are that high, chances are those guys are that high on other boards too. And there may be somebody desperate to go get one of them. I see if I can hold somebody up and move down maybe five or six spots. All right, Paul, let me ask you this, because I've been mulling this over the last couple of weeks. You know how NFL teams tend to freak out about poor athletic testing, especially when they're borderline outlier? And I don't think this guy is in that category, but he's close, given how crazy some of these testing numbers are. Is there a chance that A.J. Epinesa out of Iowa falls to the Giants at number 36? Yeah, you know, from being in Indianapolis with you, John, at the Combine, it sounded like a lot of people thought he could be a very early second-round pick. And there were others who thought he'd be a first-rounder. But enough did think he could fall to the Giants' vicinity. I would not have a problem taking him. And I wouldn't have a problem taking uh, the, the Mattos kid from Penn State either. I have, if, not, I have not watched Mattos in great detail yet, Paul. Have you? I have watched some. What? I have not gone deep into him. What are your thoughts? Well, I'll tell you something. He certainly gets off pretty quick. I mean, I, he, he, he has an aggressive, an aggressive fire about him. He plays hard. It looks like he has a clue as to what he's doing. He looks like, a very, like I said, an intelligent player. He doesn't get fooled very often, doesn't get caught out of position, doesn't over-pursue, very sound, good tackler. The kind of guy who, again, Captain Chaos coached him at Penn State. Because of what I said before about the connection between guys who may be ready-made with some guys who know them, I could see them making that pick there. And he's a guy who a lot of people think is a second-round pick. Now, at the same time, I would also tell you, I would still listen to the phone. Because if there's somebody who really wants to get somebody there and is willing to give me something that's really worth it, maybe, uh, I don't know, get me something in the middle of the third round if I want to move down six or seven spots... I'd certainly do it. Yeah, maybe you could swap third-round picks even, something like that, move yeah. up 25 spots in exactly. round three, you know, something like that. Exactly. No, I'm with you on that. All right, let me throw another scenario at you real quick. Let's say you get to pick 36 and not one safety has been selected yet. So you have the kid from LSU, well, the kid from you. Alabama, you have the kid from Minnesota, oh. uh, you have the two small school kids, Duggar and Chin, on the board, who, by the way, if you don't take Simmons, they, they're not a bad poor man Isaiah Simmons type of guy there that you could try to develop in that way. Would you consider taking a safety at 36, and then maybe you use Julian Love as a slot guy rather than having him play safety? You're telling me McKinney's going to be sitting there at 36, I'm huh? telling you, your pick of the safety class is on the board. Well, I, I and I think McKinney is going to sneak into the bottom of the first no, round. And he, and he could. So if he slips to 36, his grade is going to be warranting of a selection. How about Delpit? Do you like him too or no? I think he is right in that vicinity, but I like McKinney better. Okay. Um... Oh boy! See, I, I come with the qu- qu- I come with the tough questions. Well, you know. do, you do. But again, out here's my thing: if if Josh Jones is there, 
I'm making that pick at 36. Okay. Because but, I think there are enough of people yeah, I don't think who are is. telling me he could be late first round, right? But, Paul, I like Josh Jones. If okay. Josh Jones there's at 36, I'm I, running to the podium. I'm okay. with you. And, and, and I'm running a 4-2 to get there with you. <laughs> okay? Because enough of people think he's late first round. See, he's the only one of the group of those those secondary offensive linemen that you, you said to me, you question, why is there not a consensus? He's the only guy of that second group who has a bunch of people who think he could be late first round. I agree with He's you the on only that. one. Well, I think I, there seems to be on the scouting side a real love for Austin Jackson because of his athleticism, but I agree it's much stronger on Jones. Okay, so if he's there at 36, I'm running up to get him. If he's already gone at 36, I really want to take phone calls before I make a selection because I'd like to find a way to get higher in that third round. The black hole, the Bermuda Triangle, that the Giants are going to have to wade through to get to that compensatory is awfully dark, John. Paul, I want to pick at the end of round two or the top of round three so bad, I don't even know how to verbalize it. Well, I'm trying to give you a way to get one. Well, I want one. All right. Well, then make a deal. <laughs> don't, don't take a guy at 36 unless it's Jones. Make a deal. Hey, no argument for me. Anybody else that really jumps out at you, Paul, that you're keeping an eye on, that you think, boy, I would love for this guy to drop out of the top of round one to get to the top of round uh, <laughs> Drop out the bottom of round one to get to the top of round two. Be realistic now. Don't, you know, do you think either Queen or Murray have a chance to get there? Do you think you got a shot at one of those guys uh, if you don't pick Simmons at four? I'm going to go deeper and give you one oh, round deeper. Give it to me. What do you got? Okay. I really, really, and you know this because I, I told you this at Indy. And I went to the uh, I went to see the forty yard dashes for the wide receivers in the stadium, and I immediately after my interview with him with the media session, and then watching him on the forty, I drooled over Chase Claypool. And the problem is he ain't making I, it to ninety nine, bro. He's not, <laughs> and that's why I'm with you. Get me higher. Get me higher. Get me out of that compensatory area. Get me higher. And see if I can get Chase Claypool. See, I like Michael Pittman better than I like Claypool. Okay. And Pittman, Pittman I think, is an outstanding prospect who also oh. will fit what the Giants need. Well, let me ask you this. Here's one for you. <laughs> see, we're getting uh -oh. even trickier now. Oh, no. Okay, you get to pick 36. Yeah. You want to know who's sitting there for you? Go ahead. You have your choice of either Denzel Mims or T. Higgins. <laughs> Paul, I've heard a lot of noise the last week. Mims will be there. I, I've heard a lot of noise the last week. T. Higgins is going middle of round two. Wow. If, See, I'm, if I'm giving you your choice of Mims or Higgins at the top of round two, does that, does that feed your appetite for the skyscraper wide receiver oh enough to take goodness. him? <laughs> oh, my goodness. Well, you know what? I John, <laughs> I I think T. Higgins is a is a borderline top twenty to top twenty five uh, player in this draft. People were really down on his workout at his pro day. I know, I know. But did you watch him play? I have not dug into his tape deeply yet. That right. I have wide receivers on my list for this weekend. I I have wa I watched enough of Clemson this year to know that I absolutely adore that guy, and he I, he's going to make somebody very happy in the first round. If he's there at 36, that means on my board, he's sticking out like a sore thumb. He doesn't belong there. So I got I to gotta take him. And I think Mims is a second rounder. 
I think he's a solid, excellent second-round pick. Higgins is a second-round steal. Very good. Very good. That's where I'm going. All right, so you like Claypool in the round three. I think that Ben Barch, if you don't pick an offensive tackle round one or two, the kid out of St. John's, I think he could be a pick in the round three, top of the fourth round as an offensive tackle. I think you think about that there. I've heard enough people talk about him, how much they love the kid, Paul. Well, John, look, I'm not going to lie to you. I haven't seen him. I can't get film on this guy. Well, again, <laughs> like I said, that again, neither can I. I'm with you on that. So, again, what? that's just a name that I've heard a lot about. And I think here's the thing. If you're going to find a starting offensive tackle at the bottom of round three or top of round four, you have to pick a guy like Bart, right? Because if there's a guy at a power school that can be that type of player, right, he ain't going to be there. So if you want to try to find a starting tackle, like you're going to have to go for a smaller school guy like Barch. Well, I'm not so sure because if you want to go D, if you want to go end of round three, early round four, there seems to be a lot of uh, skepticism about Isaiah Wilson. And, you know, with his size and his frame and coming from a program that certainly gets it done, and because Georgia was on TV enough, I did see enough of him. I think the guy, he needs to polish things up. I don't think he's making it there, Paul. I don't think he's making well, it there. He might. I, I Look, I've heard more people down on him because they think he's sloppy. Right. And he's inconsistent. But but you know what? Uh, at that point, I'd consider trying to coach him up and clean him up. Do you think anyway Prince Tega Winoho makes it there? I'd pick him in one of those two spots. Mm, yeah, he might. He might. I, I You know... John, this is this is going to be such a difficult. <laughs> it really is. This is going to be such a difficult draft. And look, here's the good news for the Giants: there is some fruit on the trees that they need to go to. Yep, that's the good news. And Paul, we we've sat here before, and the Giants. I don't pick, think he, I don't think he's going to be there. But okay, I, you, you, you'd have to consider. Him, but look, obviously, we, we've sat there, Paul, in these drafts, and the Giants are picking 15 or whatever, and we're like, oh my God, there's a chance that nobody they need in a position of need. Oh, they're going to be good there enough now. is going to be there, but that is not going to be an issue this year. Absolutely not. Which is which is why, in one regard, it's great if you're the Giants, because again, outside of that big black hole to get to the compensatory, which does hurt right now, but outside of that, you say to yourself, "Well, you're going to turn around after the compensatory, and before you know it, they're going to be picking at the top of the fourth round." So you, if you can cluster a group of guys together there, you can grab two of them, yeah. which isn't bad. Okay, that's not a bad thing. And the, remember, the Giants did that when they picked, what was it, Lorenzo Carter and B.J. Hill, only yeah. a few picks apart? Yeah. I mean, it's not a bad position to be in. So overall, you're number four. You're picking at the top of the second round. You've got an ability to cluster guys and grab two guys at the end of round three. They're not in terrible shape here. And and we know that the draft has fruit, again, at positions they need. Now, the problem is, if you make mistakes, man, it's going to hurt. It is. No question about it. And that draft, by the way, I'm trying to see exactly. Um, if you want to check the picks on the Giants in the draft, that make sure I have that right. Uh, yeah, they picked Lorenzo Carter at 66, and they picked B.J. Hill at 69. Right. I had that right. So right. just three picks apart. All right, Paul, just before we say goodbye, I don't want to go Lance Meadow length on this podcast. So uh, <laughs> if, 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 you have, if you have one other nugget or just point you want to make on this draft as to where you stand now three weeks before draft night, lay it on me. Well, let me just say this. If you're going Lance Meadow length, that means we're going short. 
Bum. Okay. Uh, and your question again was? <laughs> just, you were so anxious to get the joke out. I really was. I really was. You weren't even paying attention to the damn question. I really was. Um, <laughs> um, is there just any other general thought you have either about the draft class as we stand here today or about what the Giants will be looking at when they make these picks? Just a general thought that you might want to close with yeah. before we say goodbye. My only general thought is, you know how Dave Gettleman always says, you try to to get the guys in free agency that will plug the significant holes so that you don't go into the draft desperately needing somebody. Well, guess what? We do know the Giants desperately need a pass rush, and we know the Giants desperately could use more help on the offensive line. The other holes that they have to fill are 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 less painful. They're a, they're a little bit more shallow than than those those first two that we mentioned. Uh, so, you know, I, I'm sure that Dave, to some degree, is is losing some sleep over the fact that he knows he's got to make really good picks. At the same time, I also think they're done with free agency. I mean, based on the reports that we've heard and the 11 guys they've imported from other teams, I, I don't necessarily think they're anybody, anybody else. I think this is it. This is the roster they're probably going into the draft with. And so uh, if if there's one thing good to be said about it, well, he's going to have a lot of time to mull his options. By the way, I should point out that if you go to the Giants Huddle Podcast, folks, we have one-on-one interviews with all the Giants uh, that got signed in for agency and became official pending physicals this week. So make sure you go check it out. And the one thing, Paul, you mentioned, and this will be my last point, I guess, Cameron Fleming was on with Mike Eisen and I today, and he basically said that before he signed with the Giants, he said to him, look, if I end up going there, I'm going there so I can compete for a starting job. So I think he has every intention of showing up to the Giants and being the starting right tackle this year with whomever he's going to compete with. Why shouldn't he feel that way? I mean, seriously, we think, think about it. Because right now, the only guy the Giants can put there is Nick Gates, who had limited reps at the position and by all stretches of the imagination is probably going to be the man of versatility on that line this year unless he somehow winds up beating out somebody to be one of the top five, which maybe he can do. You know, I'm not going to put a ceiling on Nick Gates. I love the kid. But right now, that position, if Cameron Fleming doesn't go in thinking that that's his spot, then he's making a mistake. Correct. Also interesting that we learned about him. He was like an aerospace engineer major at Stanford, and he once dreamed to, to be an astronaut. But then he said, I got too tall and I wouldn't be able to fit in the space shuttle. Uh, good point. <laughs> uh, quite frankly, I'd rather see an offensive lineman keep his feet on the ground. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, yes, that is always very important. All right, folks. Paul, this was a lot of fun. I hope you had fun. I did, too. Yeah, it was. And appreciate uh, our guest, too, because uh, i tell you something, John. It's starting to heat up, man. I'm looking at the calendar, and it says April. We're getting close. Yeah, we are about just under three weeks away from draft night on Thursday night, April 23rd. So make sure you stay tuned to Big Blue Kickoff Live. We will continue our school previews over the next, I think we got, what, two weeks worth more, give or take, Paul. Yeah. And then we have uh, a bunch of draft experts along the way, too, as we get you ready for the 2020 NFL Draft, which will be essential to everything the Giants do moving forward. Just once again, you can check out uh, Matt Manicharian. He was our guest. He is the VP of Football Research at Pro Sports at uh, Sports Info Solutions, and it's called the SIS Football Rookie Handbook. Make sure you check it out. For Matt, for Dettino, I am Schmelk. You can find Big Blue Kickoff Live on all your favorite podcast platforms and on Giants.com slash podcast. 
and the Giants mobile app. Make sure you check it out along with our other podcast offerings. We're continuing to do shows throughout this isolation period, hopefully giving you guys some entertainment along the way. Enjoy your weekend. We'll see you on Monday.